0: My name is Dr. Chris Jenkins, and I am the CEO of the Orient Society and the host of the Snake Talk podcast, the podcast where you learn about nature's most feared, maligned and persecuted animals. I invite you to listen to this conversation, and maybe you'll find that what you perceive as fear is actually rooted in a deep fascination. Uh, Welcome to the uh, Snake Talk podcast. I am here with Don Becker and Mike Pingleton, and we are here today to talk about a pretty amazing uh, revolutionary tool um, in the world uh, of reptiles and snakes, Uh, and it just has a lot of uses in terms of uh, facilitating recreation all the way down to on-the-ground conservation and management. Um, and what we're going to be talking today about is—is a is uh, uh, I guess you'd call it would you call it software? Don, what would you call it? Uh, yeah. Or an app? Uh, it,
1: both. <laughs> yeah, so it's
0: all the above. All of the above. All of the above. Mapper, and uh, it, it's basically a a way to store and record data for animals that you find in the wild. And uh, this has always been an interest of mine. I remember from. You know, when I was a child, I was always out finding all kinds of animals. And, and uh, you know, I was familiar when uh, eBird from Cornell Lab came out in the bird world. And for a while, I always just thought it would be amazing if we had something similar with snakes because so many people are out there looking for them recreationally doing research on them maybe finding them opportunistically and and having a tool that allows us to capture those data uh and, and potentially make use of them in the future is just really really important so excited to uh talk to both of you today um welcome to the uh, snake talk podcast thanks, thanks for having us. us no problem um why don't we start off and and why don't you both just kind of give me uh, the introduction you know who are you what what do you do these days for uh for work and kind of what's your general role relative to to hurt mapper and then we'll dive into that in more detail
1: okay i guess i can go first um i'm a programmer by trade i develop websites uh mobile apps games all kinds of stuff i mean i do a lot of server administration and whatnots as well but um, just been something i've done since I think I started programming for people when I was, you know, 16 or 17 years old, (laughs) if I look back far enough. So um, I just I work for myself, contract work. So it gives me a lot of free time to volunteer and work on projects like Hurt Mapper and and some others that we also run. So uh, just somewhere along the lines, merge the two.
0: That's great, Don. So you, uh, you must have a lot of flexibility. I'm assuming you work from home mostly and, and, uh, kind of can make your own schedule to some degree. It sounds like a a pretty nice life you've built for yourself there. Yep. How about you, Mike?
2: Well, I'm retired. So I retired from the university of Illinois, um, in May of 2019. And, uh, but I keep pretty busy. One of the things I keep busy with is I have, I have a podcast just like you, Chris. And, uh, Keep busy with that, and uh, I've been involved with the Hurt Mapper project since uh, its inception. And I'm not a programmer, uh, <laughs> although uh, although I'm familiar, very familiar with that because I worked in computer operations for uh, many years. But uh, w- what I bring to the project is um, field experience, a lifetime of field experience, uh, and I also. Bring some project management skills and critical thinking skills uh, to the project as well, because that's sort of been, it's been part of my career as well. So um, so it's the Herper part and really kind of the um, project management part that that uh, I'm responsible for. And I also help take care of our uh, internal taxonomy, which uh, <laughs> it's a difficult uh, <laughs> kind of a difficult project in itself, as as you know, as we keep uh, adding new species and sinking and elevating genera and species constantly. So, do you have been,
0: a? Is there a standard that you follow, like SSAR, or what? What's the standard that that you guys follow?
2: Well, it it's kind of a <laughs> ahead. <laughs> but, it's kind of a leapfrog ahead, but um, I decided early on that I would. F- I would follow, and I, the collective, herp mapper, I, I would follow uh, for reptiles. I use the Reptile Database as my reference, and for amphibians, I use the uh, American Museum of Natural History's Amphibians of the World list. And so, those are the two taxon, what I call taxonomic entities, that I refer to, and that, that's where we build our species lists off of those two. taxonomic taxonomic entities what we didn't want to do and what we sometimes skirt very dangerously close to is becoming our own taxonomic entity and that's not what we're here for so
0: yeah yeah no that makes a lot of sense mike and i bet you have some interesting stories in terms of interacting with with users and uh because people can get pretty heated about taxonomy so uh yeah Yeah, we can maybe we can dive into that a little bit more later. But but I I would like to hear, uh, you know, a little bit about how you guys got into snakes and reptiles and amphibians more generally. It's a you know, to us, it's a pretty normal thing. But to a lot of people out there in the world, uh, you know, it's kind of an eccentric interest, I, I think is growing and and that's changing but I would be curious kind of what your what your stories are I guess we'll start with you Don how did you originally get into to snakes and reptiles and amphibians in general
1: I don't remember ever not being into them so uh, (laughs) I can tell you going way back I was probably four or five years old Um, we lived between uh, Westlake Park and a trailer court on the outside of Davenport, Iowa, and there was an old wooden truck topper in our apple trees. And one year we were jumping on it, it collapsed, and we just left it there. And the next year we went to pick up all the wood, and there was like 30 or 40 garter snakes under it. And I think I caught every single one of them. (laughs) so um and and and, you know looking back it's not good but I think I kept every single one of them for a while we (laughs) had one big terrarium with them so uh but then along with that there was a playground by my house that had some railroad ties along the road and we used to flip those all the time and find garter snakes and we were this uh, the trailer court I lived next to had a lake in it and full of bullfrogs and snapping turtles and painted turtles and I was just always out catching them so I don't I don't think there was ever a moment where I was like oh this is my thing this is what I want to do just as far back as I remember, I was catching snakes and frogs and turtles and whatever else. So. Yeah. Were your parents
0: uh, supportive of, of that interest? or
1: I mean, they let me have 30 to 40 garter snakes in the house and in an aquarium. So, yeah. And uh, my mom one night when I was a little older, probably 11 or 12, like came home, shaking me out of bed. And I like she scared me, actually. She's, come on, we got to go. We got to go. We got to go. And I was like, what, what are we doing? What are we doing? And we just, she tells me to get in the car and we take off up the road. Like I have no clue what's going on and we're just driving up the highway for a while. And then finally she slows down. She goes, they were here somewhere. They were here somewhere. She, and I go, what? She goes, when I came back into town a minute ago, there was frogs all over the road. <laughs> and she, so she came back home and woke me up out of bed just to take me back out to show me all these frogs all over there. And they, they had stopped by the time we got there. So I i didn't get to see the frogs in the rain until a couple of years later, but, but she tried. Uh, yeah. I remember being on car rides as families and she, We'd suddenly slam on the brakes and hit the shoulder of the road because she saw a turtle go off the shoulder of the road. So I'd
0: call call that supportive. That's that's great. You know, I often think and that's one of the lines or one of the reasons that I developed this podcast. I think there are a lot more people in the world who are fascinated by these animals. But at a young age, they're. They're just taught that that you you know you shouldn't like these animals. You should fear them, maybe. Maybe you should kill them, depending what they're they're taught. But I, I feel like so many people are molded at a young age to to have a particular perspective on these animals. I, I really think there are a lot of closeted people that are at least have a general interest in in snakes and and other animals. Just like you know they might. You know, say a tiger or some type of hawk or something. So
1: I think anybody who's done any kind of education with kids would would say that exact same thing. Because I've literally been doing public programs, and I will I will watch the fear get put into a child because they'll come into a room. I'll have I used to have an eleven foot python, and they would oh my god, this is so cool, and they'd come in, and their mom or dad would grab them and go no 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 stay back stay back, and like instantly their attitude towards that snake changed.
0: Yeah. So yeah. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a true thing. So how about you, Mike? How uh, tell us a little bit about uh, do you have a similar story to Don? Were you were you born with the the gene, if you will? But uh, or is it something you kind of became interested in over time?
2: Um, I think I was 12. Uh, and that would have been. Uh, <clears throat> let's see. How long ago was that? I've, I'm 40. I'm 62 now. So I'm 50 years into this uh, and, uh, backyard snakes, uh, grew up in a suburb, St. Louis and found snakes in the yard and just became interested in them. And, uh, that just never went away. Um, um my, my parents were, uh, perplexed and perhaps worried, um, <laughs> because back then, um, I didn't know anybody else who did this and it seemed very strange and everybody had a terrible snake story and everybody would say that the, the classic things that people who don't like snakes or people who are afraid of snakes say. So it was a very lonely place until um, I got older and started meeting other people of like minds. You could go, you know, back then you would go to a Herp Society meeting and I would go to the St. Louis Herp Society and for a couple hours, one night a month, I got to be with people that I considered were normal, <laughs> like me. <laughs> and uh, so that that gave me great encouragement. And I just kept at it and kept at it. And um, you know as i as I became an adult and I you know got married and had kids and worked on my career, that kind of got put to the side some, but not completely. And then, as my kids, reached an age where they really didn't need me around too much, Uh I started getting back into it back in the mid-90s and uh, got back into it big way and made decisions back then to, you know, make this my, my not full-time pursuit, but, but basically the one thing that I was tr- truly interested in doing. So. Uh, yeah, that,
0: that's, that's great. So did you, uh, similar to Don, did you keep animals or was it primarily going out into the see animals in the wild is that kind of what you did at younger ages or
2: oh I, I did both um, I was uh, I was uh, involved with what would you call the captive captive breeding community or the captive community and uh, I bred a lot of colubrid snakes and uh, a lot of a lot of frogs and uh, at one time I had uh, quite a few uh, quite a large collection and, uh, and uh, that took up a lot of my time and because I enjoyed getting out in the field so much I also made in the 90s i made a conscious decision to uh basically cut cut back on the animals that i you know would keep in captivity and um of course now the only thing i have uh, is a, a colony of red foot tortoises that i've had for uh, about a quarter century now i haven't given up on those but uh Basically, I, I, I don't keep snakes or frogs or anything anymore and um, because I travel so much um, pursuing those things in the wild. So it's just not a easy thing to do, take care of things, uh, a large collection, and uh, get around quite a bit.
0: Yeah. Great. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about Hurt Mapper, and I want to dive into, uh, you know, get into some detail. But um, maybe one of you could – Initially, you know, I gave a just a real general overview of of what HurtMapper is, but you guys could certainly give a better kind of thirty thousand foot level. This is what Hurt Mapper is. So, one could one of you just kind of start us off with that?
1: I'll let Mike take it. He's a little more articulate than me. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: Um, well,
2: HurtMapper as a project is designed to let people capture observations of amphibians and reptiles in the field, create a, a a record or an observation out of it that's stored in a database, and then that record is shared uh, with what we call vetted users, which would be uh, a state, uh, like a, a, a DNR, a Department of Natural Resources, a conservation organization, a university researcher, somebody's going to take that data and use it to study amphibians or reptiles or conserve them. Uh, it could be a land manager. It could be you know somebody who's has to make big decisions about uh, conservation plans for species in in uh, various states and territories and other places. And so the idea is it's to get everyday people who go out and. And enjoy amphibians and reptiles in the field, the opportunity to collect data, and then that data can be used to protect the animals that they enjoy seeing in the wild. And it's all based on, you know, the there's the HerpMapper project, and then there's also the app, which is uh, downloaded on your phone. Of course, we support uh, I, uh, Apple or iOS and uh, uh Android Android. and uh, we support those platforms and it's an app you put on your phone. It uses your phone's uh, native GPS, right? Uh, Even when you don't have cellular access to a cellular tower, uh, you still, your GPS on your phone still works. So you're, you're still talking to satellites. So you find an interesting frog, turtle, snake, whatever. Uh, You take a picture of it and it record. And when you open the app and create a record, it, uses your phone's GPS location to create a record that has the exact location of the animal and what we call a photo voucher. Uh, So you have to have a photo voucher so that uh, somebody can take a look at it and say, oh, yeah, that is indeed that snake or that turtle. And and it's very simple. And uh, so if you're out having a hike in the forest one day and you, you find 10 frogs, you can take 10 records of those frogs upload them to the heart mapper database and uh, then they become usable by our vetted partners our researchers and our conservation people
0: that's that's great so what i'm curious about the the initial idea here you know i mentioned kind of uh you know i mentioned eBird for example the cornell lab of ornithology's uh, kind of bird database if you will and uh, you know, I've been thinking about those types of things for a number of years, but what, how did this all start in your mind? What was the original uh, idea and, and how did it come about?
1: Um, this goes farther back before Hurt Mapper. Um, see, we we all kind of met, me, Mike, and Chris uh, through com, And I remember being on there and seeing all these people gather. Or posting their sightings, you know, they're out there taking pictures, obviously. And uh, I, I thought it'd be nice to do something. where We could gather all the observational data. Uh, I come from Iowa, and there, there's no real major herp surveys done in Iowa any longer. Uh, I think some big ones were done back in the 40s, and then really they fell off from there. And so, I was kind of inspired to say, hey, "What if we could let everybody contribute this data?" At the time, though, nobody knew who I was. You know, I was just some guy from Iowa, and why is everyone going to give me all their herp data? You know, (laughs) Uh, fortunately, right around the same time, uh, someone who was more well known, Jeff Lem, um, uh, he was with the San Diego Zoo at the time. I think he might still be. Um, He had the same idea. He was out with some herpers and he saw them jotting down GPS coordinates and notepads and stuff like that. He goes, What do you guys do with this stuff? And they told him, Oh, it just goes in his shoebox back at the house. So he said, well, why don't we do something with this? Why don't we put it into a database so we can share the data? Um, and so from when he came out public with his project, I was like, well, I wanna work on this. I've been wanting to do the exact same thing, guys. And I'm a programmer, let me do this. And uh, took a little bit to get going. I finally got involved with the project and, and we spun off and did naherp.com, or not spun off, sorry, but started up naherp.com. Um, and that ran, You know, well, it's still running today, but, uh, Mike, Chris, and I were all involved with it in, in various forms of whether being a coordinator for the project, me as the developer, database coordinator, um, and kind of learned the good and the bad of the project. Um, and Na Herp was was really more community driven that's that may not be the best term but where everyone had a say and so it was kind of hard to get a little bit some things done um i kept having issues addressed with our with people requesting data i would say well this does us no good without gps coordinates this does us no good without photo vouchers um they it was a long delayed process where people could choose not to release their data to data partners and and the the people requesting data didn't like that very much so we tried to get the changes made some people were holding on to that method of what they they wanted to have control over who saw their data. Um, and so around 2012, I just started rewriting a whole new thing. And I kind of did it all in the background, didn't tell anybody what I was doing. And at the point where I was like, you know, there's no reason I can't do this globally. There's no reason to limit it to just North America, which is the N.A. and N.A. Herp. Um And I think it was Mike and Chris and I were all at a campfire together in 2012 in Southern Illinois, and and I brought it up to him. I was like, well, here's the deal, guys. We can't get these changes made. Why don't I just do this other thing? And I think Chris was all about it right off the bat. Mike was more hesitant. He was like, no, I think we should try to fix the problems on any herb. And then I found out about two hours into the night after after Mike may have had a couple beers that why he was against it. Because he finally looked over me and goes, now, Don. Okay, you start a new site and a new project. Do I have to enter in all my data again? And I, go, I go, no, Mike. I'll, I'll import it from one to the other. And he goes, oh well, the hell with it. Let's do it. <laughs> so,
0: so when did Na Hurt start approximately? Uh, oh,
1: Oh, two thousand and five, four. Back in the before times. Yeah, gotcha. You
0: know. <laughs> and then about two thousand twelve, you guys had this sitting around a campfire and, and decided we could, you know, we could make you know, make this better, make it more, uh, effective. Um, and, uh, and so how long did it take you to get herp mapper functioning or was that pretty quick happened right in 2020? So <laughs> like you'd been working on it behind the scenes, right? So
1: the, the longest part about it was actually that species list, like Mike said, the taxonomy. And I got fortunate. There was a, there's a book put out by Ramos and Ramos. It's a species list of the entire world. And literally that's all it is. It is not a field guide. It is not a, um, you know, any kind of descriptors, no pictures. It is literally just a very long text listing, a paperback book about three quarters of an inch thick of every single species in the world at the time it was published, which was 1997. So the longest process was the six months it took me to hand type that book in to generate our species list as a basis. Um, The coding stuff, I mean, it, I worked on it on and off in the background and it it probably took me a couple months just because again, I wasn't focused on it. Um, i don't know mike i think once you and chris were on board with it we were up and running within a month yeah so. yeah
2: <clears throat> yeah we and uh it kicked off in september of 2013 that was our, our go date um and uh in seven years we have we're getting close to uh, a third of a million records we're very close to that uh we would have hit that this year except for you know COVID. Yeah. um but i also also point out too that um what we did with HerpMapper, besides making changing it from a North American-based database to a global database, we also kind of changed how people participate. Uh, organizations can't be effective if you've got a thousand voices uh, competing for attention. And that was kind of how the structure of uh, NA Herp was. It just wasn't very effective. And uh, moving forward with HurtMapper, if you if you sign up for HurtMapper, you uh, you can see every record you ever put into that into that project. You have access to your records. But when you also when you join HurtMapper, you agree to make any of your records available to any of our vetted uh, what we call data partners, right? So you agree up front that you just make your data, all of your data, available. And uh, chances are, if you put a mapper record in somewhere in the United States, it's already being—it's a—it's in somebody's—it's—it's uh, it's being used by somebody, either on a state level or a federal level, or a research level. Somebody is already using that data, so right away you contribute.
0: Yeah, it seems. I remember from NA Herp, it was—you uh, know—essentially, people could, if they wanted to, basically use it as just their personal kind of. Uh, you know, diary uh, of data and share it with absolutely no one but themselves. Um, and so I do think that the transition to mapper and linking those data to real-world uses is just, uh, I mean, it's a monumental shift that is critically uh, important. I, and I think you could still use HerpMapper, uh, you know, in terms of, as like a, uh, you know, a diary, if you will, of the animals you well, the years.
2: Oh, I do. I, I since 2013, um, I put almost every herp I've seen into the database since 2013. Uh, it's around 9,000 records. Uh, and so, if I need to recall where I saw something, when I saw it, uh, I can I can look that up. I can look, you know, I can do searches on by species, by the country, by I have all these variables I can check out in keep track of all the things I've seen. It's very handy too. So it's, a, it's still a really good personal tool, uh, to use that, you know, as somebody who, you know, goes out in the field to observe amphibians and reptiles and then so, Don, Don also built these, this cool little tool in there that generates a life list based on your records. So it just c- builds a, um, an interesting little list of all the things you've seen and puts it, you know, taxonomic order. And then, you can, you know, download download that as a PDF and and you've got your own life list too.
0: Yeah, well, that's great. So so you people enter their data and then those data um you know then are potentially used, say, by like state fish and wildlife agencies or other vetted groups that have a um you know a, a significant reason to use those data. Um how about like other users? Like if you enter Data, Mike, can you set it so Don could look at your data, or is that completely private? How does that?
2: Uh, uh, no. Uh, the uh, The idea is the only people who can see look what we call locality data, where where it was actually found, are our data partners, our vetted users. Um. So if if Don and I say we're not involved with the project. Uh, unless Don's logging into my account, he cannot see the, the, the meat of my records. He can, he can see my records at a very high level, like the species, the picture of it, and down to the county level where, where it occurred, but no, no, uh, nothing finer than that in terms of where it was at and that kind of thing. Um, and so we did that on purpose. We wanted, we wanted HerpMapper to be also a tool where people could see what other people were doing but not in a way that allowed them to make malicious use of that, of locality data, which is as you know, is is kind of a serious issue these days.
0: Yeah, that was going to be my next question. If you had a species uh, I don't know, say like a Bog turtle—that's just, you know, incredibly sensitive uh, locality information, and so that's the way that you've dealt with that. So basically, you will only see your own bog turtle records, and then those records will only go out to vetted groups, say like state fish and wildlife agencies. That's how you protect right. those. Right.
1: And and there is actually the way as well. So if you have a record, you know, an observation that's so sensitive, you don't want even people to see that you found it, what county, any of that stuff. You can hide an observation from the public in general. Um, I just wanted to say, too, like you're asking specifically, like, can I share my records with Mike? And obviously I can export my data and give it to Mike if I wanted to. Um, but we don't we don't make that really straightforward for people to go, oh, let me give access to this person and. that's part of the balance of data security and also user freedom with their data. Um, I've had some people ask me why we don't have a comment system on the records anymore. And in the past, I've seen people get harassed via comments on observations. Um, And it's, it's sometimes too much user interaction leads to problems. So again, nothing stops someone from sharing their data, but I don't need someone, you know, Creating some account and then, you know, talking to a user and going, oh, well, you know, I'm so and so with this state agency, you know, mm-hmm. and they're just lying. It's a phishing scam. And then they get given access to all the data. Um, I just I don't want to facilitate it anymore. And I have to, you know, obviously, by allowing people to download their own data, there's some options for that. But um there's also no reason a data partner shouldn't be going through us directly, and so by not allowing them to contact the user, they go through us and we vet them out. And anybody who sees, yeah, so if you're listening to this and anyone contacts you and says, "Hey, I'm a data person. I need I need to access your data," uh, let us know uh, because they should be going through us. And that's that's not because we're trying to you know be the gatekeepers of the data, but it's it's a way we're protecting the data from unsavory characters. Yeah.
0: So if people want to find or um, you have a website. And if they go to that website, um, you, you mentioned already the app, and I want to talk a little bit more about that, Mike, but um, they can also enter their data through the website. Is that correct?
2: That's yes. correct.
0: And, yeah. and what, what is that process like just generally?
2: Um, but again, you need uh, two things. You need the base, the, the two basic things that constitute a record, uh, which is a, a photo voucher and the location. And so you can enter if you have the exact location of the animal and you know where to find it, you, and you have a photo voucher, you can use the browser to add records. And I've done this in the past and you can upload a record from your, uh, to heart mapper, uh, to create a record. And then you have, uh, an interactive map as you're creating a record to locate where that animal was. Now, of course that option, it can be, it, it can be tricky for new people to use because sometimes you may not get the right location, Uh you know, cause you're, you're going to navigate and you are going to try to remember where it's at, which is why we, we much rather people for the bulk of the records, is to use the phone app because um, it, you know, if you create the record where you where you found the animal, there's no question about the locality because it, it's using your phone's you know, GPS. So. How, um,
0: how do you guys deal with it? How much time does it take doing kind of data quality control? Like, for example, let's just say I I uh, post an indigo snake that I found um, in Iowa. And um, I mean, that's an obvious one. But, but you know what I mean? De- dealing with those types of issues, is that how significant an issue is that um, for you guys?
1: It, it can be. Um, I've actually it was last week before was cleaning up a lot of data Um <clears throat> Some of it is is just due to error. You know, people are browsing the maps, you know, to create a new record and they accidentally click on the map again. It creates a new spot. Um, we have uh, a lot of the times people are be hand typing in GPS coordinates and they leave off a negative sign on the latitude or I mean on the longitude. And so it's showing that there's a leopard frog in China. Um, and that's actually one of the weird ones in that most species you can go, oh, well, that doesn't exist in China and just, you know, put the minus sign on it back to the U.S., and what really sucks is that red-eared sliders are starting to legitimately show up in China. And you never know if that was an error or not at this point. And some other species as well. Um, I think the biggest issue that I was dealing with recently uh, is, is due to the taxonomy. I like said Mike said, we were kind of jumping ahead earlier, too, as far as what we go with, and that uh, as taxonomy changes, people's knowledge of taxonomy doesn't. And so... Um, we also have HerpAtlas.org that you can kind of go through and browse, you know, maps of the data for Herp mapper. Um, and specifically, if you go to us.herpAtlas.org, you'll see a county-level map of the whole U.S. Um, and you can see the, the maps based on our Herp mapper data. And, like, I was looking at cricket frogs, you know, where Blanchard's cricket frog used to be a subspecies of, of northern cricket frogs. And then they got split. But everybody up in Minnesota, and well, Chris would love it if more people were putting in cricket frogs in Minnesota. Um In general, the northeast part of the cricket frog range are still putting them in as crepitans instead of blanchardi, and it just skews the data there. Um, And stuff like that is easy enough, even people getting the data to look at and go, well, that's not right. It should be this species. But um, we don't require people to actually ID anything, uh, and so there is a lot of records that need to be – Corrected, have an ID added, and we do allow users to flag records if the ID is incorrect or if it needs it, uh, and and that makes it easier for us to go through and change them. So uh, we've been trying oh, to work we should,
2: out uh, <clears throat> we should mention too that people often go to HurtMapper.org, and you 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 get a blow by blow account of every record that comes in you know, it's kind of, it's kind of a scroll feed of records. So you can basically see who's finding what around the world at any time of the day. But we have folks who watch that. And if they see something that is not identified correctly or is not identified at all, um, our user community can flag those records as well and say, Hey, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't think that's an Indigo in Iowa. Well, you guys might want to check that out. <laughs> and then we have a list of flagged records that we have to go through and, and process, right. And, record by record and 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 fix them
1: and And we we have a user in florida uh i think he's still in florida luke smith who's really active just looking at records and checking the ids on them i know every time i go review our flagged records his name pops up the most as far as who's flagged them for being corrected so it's really nice to have members you know users who are that involved and want to help too and it, it makes our job a little easier
0: yeah, I was going to say that's a that's a great model. Have the users um, help with some of that work because I'm assuming there are no paid employees that do those types of work. Is primarily you guys running <laughs> this thing with your flexible schedules? Is that right? And, and we're not even yeah. paid employees. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: So uh, her map is a nonprofit organization, uh, yeah, and there so, are basically three of us that are. are uh, running the nuts and bolts, and then we get a lot of assistance from our, our user community with things like IDs and stuff like that, promotion.
0: I just wanted to take a quick break and uh, tell you guys that snakes are one of the most persecuted groups of animals in the world. Unfortunately, most snakes that encounter people end up dead, but the Orion Society is dedicated to changing that. Go to www.orianne.org to learn more and join the effort to stop the persecution. And so you mentioned this kind of real-time scroll of data coming in. Um, I know that the website has some other resources. Um, what, are, what are some of the other resources on the website in particular that you think uh, listeners would be uh, potentially interested in hearing about?
2: Oh, uh, I think one of the things you can do is you can kind of drill down into the data as a user and uh, and it'll push out. You can uh, push out like a, a phenology, an char- activity chart for a different species, uh, things like that. You can find out, um, you know, uh, like you look at a tiger salamander and you can see uh, it'll break it down like over a 12-month period. And you can see the frequency of, of uh, records over each of those twelve months, and so you can sort of get a glimpse of the, you know, maybe the, the phenological aspect of that animal when it's active and when are people are finding them. And you can also drill down and see, uh, you know, what what we have records for. And for example, you know, how many California king snake records do we have from how many states and that kind of thing. So you can play around with a lot of data in there without actually looking at anything that's uh sensitive
0: how about if i'm out in the field and i take a picture of a snake but i don't know what that snake is um how what is there a process through hurt mapper that will um help identify that for me
1: uh so we get people who submit observations and in the notes they'll just say i'd like to know what this is and as 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 i correct them and i, I assume mike and chris would do it here to e- email them uh we we do probably need a better method to allow people to say, "Hey, I'd like an ID back on this." Um, it just—it wasn't really the main purpose of the project when we started. It, you know, if you don't know what it is, again, just give us the data. We'll give it to the, the data partners, and they'll use it as they need. But we are finding more and more people would like to know what the snake is they found, and they're using it kind of as an ID service. Um, I mean, so you can, when you submit an observation, you don't put an ID on it. We later correct it. You can go back and look at your data and go, oh, okay, well, it turns out that it was a fox snake. Um, but there are some people who, who ask to be emailed about it. And, like, when I review Iowa data, I try to email everyone back who's wondering what it was. And there's even times where a person didn't specifically ask to be notified. And if they just didn't know what it was, I'll contact them and say, hey, this is what it was. Here's where you can learn more about it. Um, but that, that kind of varies on how busy we, we each are, I believe.
0: And uh, so it sounds like the app, though, is, is probably the best uh, way to to collect data just in terms of, um, uh, you know, as you mentioned, you've got the photo and you've got the location data from where that photo was taken. So you mentioned the app a little bit, Mike, but um, maybe just kind of give uh, – like how would it work? If I was in the field and I, I saw a snake um, – how would I, what would I physically do to record my my record there with my phone?
2: That's a good question. The the first thing you want to do is get a picture of the animal, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Because they they hop away, they slither away, uh, they go down holes. So the first thing you want to do before you even yep. make a record is yeah. get a photo.
0: Is, the, is okay. the photo taken through the app or do I take oh, you, the photo initially and then?
2: Uh, you can take it through the app, but it, again, it's using your camera's native Camera software and and hardware. So, uh, I always tell people get a photo first before you even open the app because you don't know what's going to happen with that animal. And there's nothing worse than creating a record and then creating, taking a photo from within the record and the frog is like 100 yards away now. So, take a photo first with your phone's camera. Then you open the HeartMapper app and you, you just go through it. It's like, you know, create new record. And uh, the, the the app will access your phone's GPS information and pull that into into the record. And it'll ask you for you can do a couple things. You then you go to your you, you can choose add a photo, take a picture, or add a photo. And add a you click add a photo and it opens up your it accesses your phone's photo catalog and you select the photo, add it to the record, and. and a few others, there's a few other data points that you can add. You can add, if you know what the ID is, you can add that. You can add the ID later. You can select unknown ID. You can add, was it an adult? Is it a juvenile? Uh, was it a larvae or eggs? Uh, was it alive? You know, we have people who collect data on dead snakes uh, on roads. So alive or dead. So you answer a few questions and then create the record. Now it's sitting there on your phone. So at some point, you're going to have to upload that record, what we call syncing the database. And uh, you have uh, your records are all saved under something called pending records. And you can go back and you can look at all your pending records and you need to make a change or something. You can edit them and then you can sync. If you have a Internet connection, you can sync with the database and shoot those records up to the to the main herp mapper database.
1: And right. One other method, by the way, aside from just taking a photo and adding a photo is uh, with the app, you can also record audio um, oh, yeah. and and ah. you'd be surprised how sensitive phones are on, on or uh, microphones are on telephones. And I've been 100 yards out from a pond and where I thought I wouldn't be able I you know, wouldn't pick it up and I could barely hear the frogs and I'll hit record and I'll go back and listen on, on my desktop computer and I can hear the frogs clear enough to identify them from a recording I took with my phone. Um, immediate even if you don't have if you don't use the app for that if you have mp3 recordings uh, we also accept m4a uh, audio files you can upload those on the website as well and for certain species of frogs that's actually more required than a photo so
2: and i like this too because it uh, it allows people to participate in uh emergence uh, data collection for you know frogs and, and toads um when are they calling? We, we get data on when they're calling. Uh, we can get data on where they're at, that kind of thing. Uh, and uh, to me, that's just, maybe you couldn't get the frog in hand, but you can certainly uh, capture a record that indicates the presence of that animal. And even if you don't know what the species is, somebody can identify it for you. So,
0: so it sounds like minimally to have a record, you need a photo and then the location that would come along with that photo, but then there's a lot of other information that you can fill in, whether it be, you know, the life stage of that animal, the you know, I'm assuming you know the name of that animal, and a number of other things, but minimally you need a um, a location and a photo, and you have a
1: record. Is that
2: yeah, photo or or sound file is done or sound indicated.
1: file, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I always say it as it's the what, the when, and the where, and the what can just be the voucher. You don't actually have to know what it was, but the voucher to show what it was when it was, you know, at least a date and where it was. Yeah.
0: Excellent. Well, it's, it's a great tool. Um, give the uh, name of the website once more for, for listeners, if you would.
1: Uh, herpmapper.org. So H-E-R-P-M-A-P-P-E-R.org.
0: Yeah. So I would encourage all of our listeners, whether this is something you do every day or, you know, if you just find an occasional snake in your backyard or frog in your backyard, um, those data can, you know be really important um and so i'd encourage you to to get on hurt mapper and uh start downloading those I, so i just want to finish up our discussion of hurt mapper by talking about kind of the back end if you will or the uses of HerpMapper. mapper and you've already mentioned that um that this is linked to kind of uh wildlife conservation and management uh, agencies organizations um Maybe you guys could start off by kind of giving us some examples of, you know, who might be a vetted user of the data.
1: So so I know we've had um, Fish and Wildlife Service in, in recent years was assessing Blanding's turtles for whether or not to be federally listed. And we provided them data of all the Blanding's turtle observations we had, and that data went towards the assessment. Um, there was also an assessment being done with Kirtland snakes for the same listing, and we were able to provide, you know, observations of Kirtland snakes for that as well um there's been a number of cases where we're getting range extension data off people's observations you know someone stumbles across a, a something in their backyard they don't know what it is but it turns out it's significant and um but i i think the the ones that i i like the best so far have been the the status assessments that we've been able to contribute to
2: yeah if chris was here he could talk uh more about his role uh he uh he's the guy who, and Chris has, you know, has a master's degree in in these very uh, very steeped in in biology and how biology as a community works. And uh, so he's the one that interfaces with people requesting data. And it's, it's kind of proposal based. You have to have an abstract that you provide us with why you want the data, what you're going to use it for. And then we, you know, we have to have some, uh, other contexts. So let's say you're a grad student and you're looking for stuff. Well, we we need to, you know, we need to talk to your 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 PI or whatever, or, or a state agency. So Chris interfaces with all those people, and it, we also lend our our help with, with him to him with that. But he's going to vet that as a you know legitimate uh, use of the data. So uh, people aren't just going to come in and say, "Hey, uh, you know, I just thought I." would have a little hobby here and, uh, and, and use some of your data. That's not how, not how it works. It has to be somebody who's has some sort of commitment to conservation or research. And, and so that keeps it, uh, you know, keeps it kind of narrow and, and um, we have, I think cl- we're closing in on perhaps a hundred users of our data now, what we call data partners. <coughs> Probably the biggest one is the Department of Defense and Don, you can tell me how many properties they have, but we, or maybe we can't, because it's top secret. But, but uh, they have more land under under use um, than anyone else, and so um, uh, they, they are really our biggest user. Um, and uh, we also have researchers at universities that are, you know, doing all kinds of interesting projects where they're, you know, m- doing habitat modeling to assess you know where species are or should be and a lot of the state people too that are using our data to help them make their their management plans either on a species basis or, or for an area and so that kind of stuff can be kind of critical um, yeah, that's,
0: that's interesting I hadn't thought about it but you know you've kind of got two kind of outreach components to HerpMapper. mapper you've got one your input outreach meaning you need to reach out to people in the world who are finding these animals. So the data comes in, but you also need to do outreach to groups that are going to use them. And I'm assuming that, um, I don't know if it's been more difficult per se, but, um, but I'm guessing that's, um, been a bigger task and something that's, you know, there's still a lot more of to do as compared to the front end. Is that, would that be a fair assessment or?
1: Yeah, we're lucky that we're all involved in the herping community. So we, we know a lot of people, uh, you know, you go, you know, normally what do people say? There's six degrees of separation, any person in the world. And I think I've commented to friends of mine that in herpers, I think it's two, you know, um, through everyone I know, I think I know every herper in the world somehow. So it, it's, it's kind of nice, or it makes it easier for us to reach out to people who need data. Um, and actually the other day I'm up in Elgin, Illinois right now. And the other day I ventured out for a walk and just coincidentally ran into the biologist for Kane County conservation. (laughs) I was able to talk to him about giving him data and stuff. So sometimes it happens easily. Sometimes it, it takes some effort. Um, I think there's actually a third part of outreach here. It's kind of a mesh of the two, um, that has been more difficult for us in that it's, it's not usually hard for us to convince people, Hey, we have data for you for free. And I mean, there is some aspect of people who don't want to give data to the project, but that's, there's a big community around it, but a big part of what we have to do is sometimes convince the data partners that people are trustworthy enough to give us, you know, they, they think there's a lot of poachers in the field herping community and, and there is, it's just not a large percentage of, you know, there's more people who aren't by all means, but um And there's been some instances, though, where that was the most difficult step is people didn't know if they could trust the data from users or um, or make sure people weren't poachers. And we've had some cool cases like, uh, you know, Mike mentioned Department of Defense, where they're actually initial... Use for HERP Mapper was just going to be to manage their own data. The employees, the biologists with the DOD were going to put their own data in, and that way they could manage what was on the, the different military installations. And when we gave them access to data, we already had data for them, even though they hadn't put anything in yet. And they were like, How, how can this be? And it turns out that military families have been out herping on the basis and we're putting in data. And so yeah, that yeah, was like. But- yeah, like eighteen hundred <laughs> records for them, right? Be, before they even asked us. So, but that that was just a nice instance where that gap was. It, it showed that immediate value to one of the data partners of what citizens themselves could actually be doing. Um, and I, I think that's actually been part of our outreach is not just reaching out to the citizens and not just the data partners, but actually bringing them together.
0: Great. Well, as I mentioned, it's a great tool and I encourage all of our listeners to get online. If you're not already familiar with it, uh, check out the website and start using it. Um, I want to transition... Oh, well,
2: also there. We also oh, have a
0: Facebook group. Ah,
2: okay. Uh, Mapper Facebook group, which is also a very useful tool for people to get more information about how to use the tool or uh, any kind of questions that they, they want, they can uh, reach out to us and if... I'm not there or Don's not there or Chris isn't there, one of our helpful user community uh, will will be happy to help.
0: Yeah, that's great. So check out the, the Facebook and social media as well. So both of you guys, as well as uh, Chris Smith, who's not on the call, are in the Midwest. And uh, we, we haven't done a lot of podcast material yet from the Midwest, and we don't have a lot of time. But um, when people think about, reptile and amphibian centers of say the US, they often think of the southeast where I am or maybe the southwest. Um but but you know we're I think every corner of our country is pretty amazing from uh herpetological perspective. Um and so I just uh would one of you mind just taking a minute and kind of giving us like the a high level overview like why is why are reptiles and amphibians and snakes in particular why do you think the midwest is a is a special place uh you know
1: if if, if you're a person who wants to be able to just drive somewhere and find a road cut on the side of the road and instantly find herps the midwest is not for you i mean i guess kansas you know you go to the flint hills you do that but um What's always amazed me about it is, is how much there is to discover still. I mean, we're in corn deserts, as Mike likes to call them. You drive for miles and all you see is cornfields. And what's interesting is you can look in the ditches along those cornfields at times where you find a remnant prairie, you know, it used to be a fence row, and you can go out in those areas and find herps that people didn't know existed in the area. Um, we're, we're expanding our knowledge in Iowa of where stuff is, it seems like every day, um, just because People don't think things exist there because the habitat was so marginal or was outright gone and things held on on one acre here or one acre there. Then someone came in and restored some of the land. You know, Nature Conservancy does some amazing things here in Iowa. Um, and next you know, those, those 10 or so animals, you know, whatever was left, are doing good but people thought they were gone and now we trip over them and, and realize they're still there uh and to me that's the coolest part about herping in the midwest is it's it's kind of like the unknown still like going to some new part of the amazon where no one's ever been out there to survey for species um <laughs> so that's that's what it feels like sometimes so that's that's what i like about it but it's it's definitely not a oh you're going to come out here uh and see a thousand snakes uh, although we did have a guest up from mexico earlier this year or, yeah earlier this year um who we took out and i think he uh we thought he and, and Daniel, if you're listening, I'm not insulting you. I hope you know that. But uh, he, we thought we had a language barrier because English is a second language. And it wasn't until a few days after that he messaged me and said that he was so overwhelmed because he didn't think he'd ever have a day where he lost track of how many snakes he found. And that's weird to say from Iowa, it just happened to be we went to a den site and we nailed emergence day. And so we found like 40 timber rattlesnakes, a bunch of racers and snakes and stuff. Uh, and so I guess that's that's something else that's I, I took for granted. I guess in Mexico, you drive for hours and hours and hours. You might see one snake crossing the road because they don't have to congregate at a den site. So in Iowa or Illinois or Wisconsin, Minnesota, if you know where they go underground and you can nail that emergence day, you know, it's you get a r- really special event. I mean, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people have heard of the Narciss Snake Dens up in Canada. And that's kind of what you get there is when they're going in and out. Uh, snake Road would be another good example of that, where it's 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 really interesting when everything has to go to one spot to spend the winter and you can be there to observe it.
2: <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah Mike, Snake Road is kind of our secret weapon. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, so yeah, Mike, why is the Midwest special to you?
2: Uh, I, I kind of agree with with Don. Um, I think um, it, for me in particular, uh, I I live in central Illinois and there's not much going on here. But if I drive four hours south, uh, I enter into an area uh, just south of where the last glacier stopped. So have uh, a lot of hilly topography, uh, Get on to the southern part of Illinois, where Sna- where Snake Road is. I don't know you uh, listeners may or may not be familiar with that place, but it's in the Shawnee forest in the, in the bottom of the state. And uh, you have all these different uh, biogeographic influences. You have Ozark plateau species coming from the West or for Eastern forest species, boreal species coming down. And then you have a Southern coastal plain species that come up and they all kind of converge in the bottom of my state. And so it's a really great place to go down and, and see a lot of, you know, cool things. I can go down to the southern Illinois and see a mud snake and uh, a timber rattlesnake and a green tree frog. And and I can see, you know, Ozark species. And it's just this nice mix of, uh, of incredible animals. And uh, it's only four hours from my house. So uh, for me, that that's the kind of thing I, I like. Um, I like those places where habitats kind of collide. And of course, and Don will echo this too, in the Midwest, uh, river valleys are really our secret weapon is a lot of animals a lot of snakes utilize river valleys uh in particular things like timber rattlesnakes and copperheads and 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 so on and so forth yeah, black rat snakes things like that and then they use those habitats and they move you know up and down those upstream and downstream along those habit uh at those types of habitats as well so um
0: well, you called out—you called out a special place. You called out Snake Road, which is not a big secret, so it's, we're not letting anything out of the hat on TikTok here. Um, and you—you you mentioned kind of a special habitat, you know, being these river bottoms. Are there any kind of like uh, species that you would highlight as, as kind of special to the Midwest and something uh, from a snake uh, perspective? That you mentioned timber rattlesnakes a couple times, but I know there's some others that are kind of interesting species that you just don't find everywhere.
2: Uh, Kirtland snake, uh, Klonophus Kirtlandi, uh, would be one, which is a kind of a marshy dwelling snake that, uh, is, uh, exists in a band that runs across the Midwest from, uh, what, Eastern Ohio or maybe Western Pennsylvania over to just barely touching Missouri. Uh, that's an interesting little, little marsh dwelling snake that doesn't get very big. It's a small worm eating snake and, uh, uh, obviously, has trouble with fra- uh, habitat fragmentation like so many other things do, but uh, that's your, a typical Midwest snake to me.
1: Uh, people seem to also really love our Midwest bull snakes. <laughs> mm. Yeah.
0: yeah. I've, uh, one thing I've never seen that I would love to see is a fox snake. Uh, how Are they difficult to find or...? <clears throat>
1: uh no uh, it, well again this goes back to if you just think you're going to drive to you know illinois or iowa and just show up and find a fox snake you, okay then you think they're difficult to find if you're someone who lives in an area in Herp's an area you, you tend to figure out where they're at and if you spend enough time i i find a lot of them just crossing roads you go out during the right time of year and there's just fox snakes all over the roads um but like we, myself and uh, my friend Jim uh, near Cedar Rapids, we had, you know, board and tin sites out for them. And if you throw plywood out in a lowland area near a river, you're going to end up with fox snakes under it. So it's if you're in the area and have the time, no, they're not difficult. Um, and if you know someone who established a site like that, they're not difficult. But yeah, if you just try to drive into the state and see one, it's, it's not that easy.
2: Well, I think you know who to hit up for fox
0: snakes, Chris.
1: <laughs> I, I was actually shocked the first time someone came into town in cedar rapids and what they did like oh my god we really want to see a fox snake and i'm like seriously like that's that's what you want to see <laughs> okay. and, and tell you and, a
0: garter snake,
1: right <laughs> Right, and and i just i forget that they are kind of a, a northern midwest endemic and that they're not all widespread but it's it yeah, was just it, it really took me off guard when that's what someone told me they uh like James Van Dyke, I think, was one of the first people. He he came up to Cedar Rapids and told me that that was this top target was to see a fox snake. And I was like, you're kidding me, right? Like I got eastern hognose snake sites and bull snake sites and we got massasauga sites and timber. And you want to see a fox snake? So
0: <laughs> That's great. Well, I'll just wrap that up by the other thing I'd say about the Midwest that I think – you know, pretty special, haven't been in the academic world for a while is that, you know, there's just a rich history of herpetology in the Midwest. Uh, A lot of people who've done some real seminal long-term studies in places like Michigan and Ohio and and other places. So uh, Kansas, obviously. Uh, So the Midwest is really a special place uh, herpetologically. And I would encourage everybody to to think about it when they think about snakes. Um, So, uh, before we wrap up, Mike, I'd like to give you just a minute here. And I'd like you to tell us a little bit about this podcast. I'd like you to plug it for folks. And t- first of all, tell us what it's called and then, you know, tell us what it's all about.
2: Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. The podcast is called so much Pingle. And, uh, that's my, been my Twitter handle and my, um, Instagram handle for a long time. And, uh, uh a friend of mine, uh, pointed out to me that uh, why do you need to change your brand? Just use that name for your your podcast. So it's So Much Pingle Herpetology Podcast. And uh, I started uh, up and running last spring and um, in spite of COVID, um, got a little bit of a late start because of all that, but uh, been up and going. I just released my 25th episode uh, this past Sunday.
0: Congratulations. And uh,
2: thanks. And then I try to have a broad mix of guests. I, I try to I want people that uh, like me that go out and do, a, you know, harping as a recreational activity. I get a lot of those people on, but I like to get researchers on the show, uh, people from all different uh, disciplines from within amphibians and reptiles, conservation people, researchers, uh, that kind of thing. And I try to keep a, a fairly even mix of, of all those sorts of people throughout the, the you know, throughout the year. So uh, a little something for everybody on the show. And the shows run an hour and sometimes up to two hours in length, depending on the guest and how cool uh, how cool the subject matter is. So,
0: Great. And where can people uh, find that podcast?
2: They can find So Much Pingle on basically any podcast platform uh, out there Apple, uh, Google Podcasts, Spotify. It's out there on all of them. Uh, and they can also go to, <coughs> to so muchpingle.com. Uh, which is, you know, it's all based off there. That's where all the show notes are. And,
1: uh, yeah,
0: great.
2: having yeah, a good time. You,
1: you know, the irony is, is that we still have not done a Hurt Mapper podcast with Mike for his, even though he <laughs> helps run the project. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. That's
0: great. laughs> Snake talk beat you too, right? So,
1: yeah, uh, yeah, Yeah.
0: If you listen to Snake Talk, uh, make sure you check out so much Pingle, um, and uh, Mike uh, is an interesting guy with a lot of experience. So um, I'm sure it's great. I need to start uh, digesting some of that content myself. Um, okay, well, we're going to move towards wrapping up here, but before we do, uh, I want to uh, you know one tradition on this podcast is I like people to tell us a great snake story so um i guess we'll start with you don if you don't mind tell us uh t- just tell us your uh, your greatest snake story
1: you, you know when you mentioned this before and mike asked about it, it's like i don't every time i think of the greatest one i think i'd have a different story to tell because there's a lot of fun stuff and like I, I already mentioned earlier my garter snakes when i was a kid and that was amazing too but um one of the ones I've gone to and I have talked about this other people as I actually have three bull snake stories that kind of led to everything I do. Um, and it's one of them just says out hiking you know. I, I, well, so I was out hiking on a trail and I told my brother to just watch his feet at the time. All I did was finding snakes across the moat area. And he goes, well, here's a snake right here. And there's this bull snake head sticking out into the trail and started following it, you know, ended up being a seven foot long bull snake with just its head Uh-oh. out into the trail. Um, yeah maybe longer. I had, I had the thing up over my head. I mean, I was holding it just behind its head and I had my arm straight up over my head and it still had part of its tail on the ground and I'm six, three. Um, and that kind of reinvigorated me to get back into herping more, you know, cause I, in my teenage years, I got more interested in girls than snakes. And so that kind of reinvigorated me to get back into the snakes. And then there was another time I was out and I found another bull snake and there happened to be a field trip next to me or like a, a couple yards off. And I picked it up and went over and showed the field trip, the bull snake, which then got me kind of doing public education with with a county conservation group. And there was another time I was flipping tit and found a bull snake. And it just kind of drew my attention to a property that I ended up doing a bunch of restoration work on that I found out historically had ornate box turtles and some other stuff. It was getting overrun by brush and turned out to be this really cool glacial relic with, a, you know, a, basically a sand moraine for, for lack of a better description. But it's just a sand ridge uh, that turned me into doing conservation work. So... There, there's really three separate bull snakes there, but the bull snakes as a species seem to have influenced my life a lot. So I'd say they're the greatest snake story.
0: That's great. That whole pitohiophis group is really one of the most amazing groups of snakes on the planet. You know, I was lucky when I was doing my my dissertation research out in Idaho. Uh, you know, we I was working on rattlesnakes primarily, but but we caught a lot of pitohiophis and um, just saw a lot of them. Uh, not as big as your bull snakes, but They can get pretty good size. And actually last week or the week before, I guess, I was out with Noah Fields, who some of you guys may know, and uh, we were, uh, we were looking for indigo snakes, um, but, you know, Perhaps the only thing that, that could be equal in my mind was that, you know, I found about a six foot Florida pine uh, just out on, you know, just coming out of its burrow. Just an incredible snake and never saw an indigo, although I left and then no, I, found a, found an indigo <laughs> shortly thereafter. So um, anyways, but uh, how about you, Mike? Do you have a, a snake story you can share with us?
2: <laughs> um, uh, you know, I also have a hard time picking Picking this and I, I i just did this very same thing for my own uh podcast on the last episode but i one of the things um one that really stands out in my mind uh happened in 2019 and i went to i retired in may may 1st and may 7th i was on an airplane to asia and i spent a month in asia uh hopping from country to country and, and doing some harping and um I, the last part of the trip, I visited uh, Taiwan for th- five days. It was sort of an add on spurious add on at the last moment. And then, uh, so I, uh, I went to Taiwan and I, I, uh, have a couple friends that, uh, one lives there and, uh, Bill, uh, uh Oh shoot. I forgot his name <laughs> <laughs> because I'm tired. Uh, uh, so you may have to edit this a little bit, but, uh, I, I went there with a couple friends of mine, Bill and Kevin, and, uh, we spent some time driving up in the mountains over Taiwan and, uh, found a lot of really cool stuff and uh, got, uh, you know, Chinese Cobra up there and, uh, a stinking goddess, the Lefei Karenada. And, uh, one of the nights, it was kind of a cold, uh, uh, sort of chilly night and we were driving way up in the mountains. And he got a good-sized snake on the road and got out of the car, and it was a mandarin rat snake. Um, uh, there used to be Alefe Mandarina, I can't remember what genus they're in now, but uh, stretched out on the road. And um, so this is one of those moments where you, you see a snake in pictures online or in a book, and you think, gee, it'd be nice to see that, but I'll never have the opportunity. And I knew those snakes were we're in Taiwan but I thought I'll never I'll never see one of those. And so uh, just to be able to drive up and be you know getting opening the door and standing up and then realizing what it was crawling on the road was uh, uh particularly uh exciting and uh I may have screamed a lot <laughs> you know in <laughs> joy and exultation but and then you know getting your hands on on the, the mandarin rat snake and and uh getting to understand that animal a little bit and basically to me after I, i've held it and i looked at the habitat it, it's it's like uh it's like a mountain king snake it's like a Lampropeltis zonata really that's oh, wow. it's you know it's up in the mountains it it bear it doesn't look like a mountain king snake in terms of appearance but it has the same habitat and it has kind of a similar body shape and and function and and basically it, it's doing the same thing it's living up in the mountains and it's uh, difficult to find it's they're usually hidden and they they're big lizard eaters so
0: um that i just thought that
2: like was one, the, of the, uh, one of the one of the cooler moments the,
0: yeah once yeah. a lifetime experience there that's great i, I love to yeah. hear that and i'm glad that you're uh that you're incorporating some of these stories in your podcast and i hope you do it take the idea and run with it i'll just I'll i'll tell you what my plans are and i'll give a little teaser to our Audience, but my my plan is after say a year or two into this podcast to create an episode where I piece together everybody's stories <laughs> into one podcast, and I'll kind of narrate it. Where you know I say, "Oh, Mike Pingleton's this," and and uh, you know he was in Taiwan, and then you know you'll come on and tell your story. So that's that's where we're going with that little uh, teaser for the audience. But
1: now I feel like I should have come up with something more exciting than for my story. <laughs>
0: No, I, okay. I, a very formative story on your part. So, and we're yeah. cool animals. So, great. Well, where can people uh, find you and where can they find Hurt Mapper? I know we've already gone through some of that, but um, let's go through it again. It can't can't hurt to uh, be repetitive on that part, so
2: uh hurtmapper.org. Right? H E R P M A P P E R.org. Um that's the main page for the project and then hurt mapper group on facebook as well
1: are we at hurt mapper on twitter is chris still running that one
2: uh we are we are (laughs) we have a a presence on twitter as well i should know that but i don't (sighs) yeah
0: and they can find you mike on so much uh, pingle i'm assuming
2: uh yeah i'm kind of all over the place um i'm very googleable but yeah so much pingle.com is a good place to to find me Also, um, I'm also on Twitter uh, and Instagram under those. And of course, I'm on Facebook as well as my as myself. So
1: little known fact, the song I've been everywhere, man, was actually written about Mike Pingleton, (laughs) both about his real life escapades and his Internet presence.
0: (laughs) That's great. (laughs) I'm assuming Don, you're a behind the scene guy, but is there any uh, place people can find you publicly that, that you want to share?
1: Or no. uh, I, I'm on Facebook. I mean, if you find me, I'm on. I'm, I'm just my name is Don F. Becker on Facebook. You could find me via the Hurt Mapper stuff. Um, I am on Twitter as at Don F. Becker as well, although I don't log it as much. It's weird that I'm the technical guy, I'm the programmer, server guy, website guy, and I'm I'm not a huge social media person. Uh, I'd much rather get together with people in person, but, but I do have an internet presence. And, uh, if you, if you tag me and stuff, I, I, I eventually see it and I'll respond and get involved. So, um, it, it, it just, I, I'd rather spend time behind the scenes working on Hurt Mapper than than being out on the social media aspect of it. And, um, I'm not always, sometimes I get in a, in a, in a mood and for like a month straight, I'll be posting about Hurt and stuff every day. And then I just don't. So
0: great well thank you both so much for uh being on snake talk today and again i hope everybody gets out there and uh looks uh for herp and i just want to thank the audience and tell everybody to remember snakes are animals too and it's a privilege to see one in the wild